Welcome to Baseball Biz. I'm Mark Corbett, your host, and with me today is none other than Mr. Brandon Noway. How you doing today, Brandon? I'm doing really good, Mark. How are you doing? I am ecstatic, buddy. I tell you what, it was an interesting adventure last night, looking at what was going on in Cooperstown, so uh, <laughs> we'll talk about that in the Hall of Fame here shortly. Uh, see some other things we could talk about today, man. Oh, 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 oh. I want to talk about an update from a previous show on Get a Grip and what's happening with Bubba and the Angels. And let's see what else is going on. Oh, the hot stove. See what's cooking. I know you're bringing some good news on that as well for some teams. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, busting out the chef hat again. There you are. Uh, we may have a little, well, talk a little bit maybe about the Blue Jays. A big profile we're going to have on Theo Epstein. And this guy's just been amazing. We'll talk about his career and what all he's done. We'll go more into the Hall of Fame, as I was saying a moment ago. And also about uh, the loss of a great legend and icon, Mr. Hank Aaron. Lastly, we'll cover the spin rate, in which that is part of our stat wrap. So stat wrap of the week will be spin rate. Okay, man. Well, this is exciting stuff. Like I said, there's a whole lot going on. But uh, first, let's talk about poor Bubba. Poor Bubba, man. This is the guy. If you haven't if you haven't listened to our show a couple of weeks ago and get a grip, what's happened is this uh, equipment manager for the um, for the Los Angeles Angels. He worked in the opponent's locker room. And so he helped them get ready. One of the things he did was help them with a special sticky substance on their balls and <laughs> baseballs. Pardon me. <laughs> Clarification needed. Thank you for rephrasing that. Thank you. Yes. Okay. Well, I'm glad we clarified. But uh, anyway, the, the the whole idea is it's been illegal for years. Okay. I mean, there's been something they could use there was a, that MLB had approved, but everybody's had to come up with their own mixture. So the angel said, no, 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 no. We're sending out a memo. Everybody, as of this moment in time, forward, no more crazy sticky stuff. This rule will be enforced. Three days later, they fired Bubba Harkins. And he says he didn't get the memo, but he did get the boot. So he was suing them. And evidently, the courts in Los Angeles did not sign with Bubba. So he lost that case. Sorry, Mr. Bubba, but uh, Brandon, you and I talked about this before. It seems quite often when there seems to be an infraction that the first ones to go are not the players, are the managers. Well, it can be the managers, not the players, and uh, not front office. So I'm not sure if he was just a casualty of that or not. But anyway, our uh, our heartfelt Warm wishes go out to Mr. Bubba, and now we know what to do with sticky stuff. Yeah, and I guess I learned from that NFL's rookie symposium they held a few years ago where the rookies were given the advice of, you have to have a fall guy in your group. Say again? So I guess he was he was the fall guy. Oh, you're kidding me. Now, to kind of jump off from that, did you remember – I don't know if you ever watched the TV show, How I Met Your Mother. I've seen a few episodes, not in a few years. There, there was a guy, Barney, I can't remember what his job was exactly, is it? He was hired by this company basically as the fall guy. He, he 
<laughs> he was the guy who signed all these kind of papers, especially some that were questionable and all that. They'd just bring them into him, and he would sign them, and he'd move on. And it was toward the end of the series, and I think they were going to fire him, but he had become very intelligent about how to manipulate it then. Anyway, I didn't mean, this wasn't meant to be a TV review on the show, but I, I find it interesting, like you're saying, that uh, NFL did assign, said, hey, assign a fall guy. Hmm, not a bad idea. What do you think it pays? It wasn't the NFL. They gave out the advice. It was a, a veteran player. Oh, they gave it gave okay. it out. I won't name one. But My apologies to the NFL. It wasn't the NFL. Okay. Well, all right. So it wasn't <laughs> the NFL. They, they would I'm do sorry. that. Yeah, that would have been a bit much. Would have been a bit much. But Jesus crackers, Brandon. That's nuts. Well, so after all this other stuff that's just been evolving the last few days, what's actually happening with the hot stove, man? I mean, we, we, we know it's not the uh, – Spring training season yet? It's not the regular season, but there seems to be a lot going on. What do you got for me, buddy? Yeah, it, it's still cooking. The last couple of weeks has really picked up, and we'll pick up with the most recent news we saw last night. And that is Wilson Ramos signed a one-year, $2 million deal with the Tigers. That's a good pickup for them. Geraldton Simmons signed a one-year, $10.5 million deal with the Twins. Tommy LaStella is close to a deal with the Giants, and Jeff Passan tweets that he expects it to be about three years. Marcus Simeon signed a one-year $18 million deal with the Toronto Blue Jays a couple days ago, and he finished third in the AL MVP voting in 2019 and was the top shortstop on the market, but he could slide to second base in Toronto. Philadelphia, they re-signed JT Riomuto to a five-year $115.5 million he was a top catcher on the market, and his $23.1 million average value would be the highest ever for a catcher, and Buster only said that that is 36% larger than the previous catcher free agent contract, which was Brian McCann at five years, $85 million. Well, that's a big chess piece to take off the free agent board right there, man. I mean, he is. there's, there's probably been more talk about him than just about anybody. Yeah, he, a lot of people had him going to the Mets, and looks like that won't be happening as what well, we kind of expected a few weeks ago. Staying with the hot stove, Cleveland, they re-signed Cesar Hernandez. Yankees traded pitcher Adam Ottavino and Frank German to Boston for a player to be named later or cash considerations. The Nationals, they signed a one-year $10.5 million deal with Brad Hand. The Yankees, they traded for Jamison Tyon and Senate prospects Miguel Yaher and Ronzi Contreras, who are pitchers, and Contreras has never pitched above Class A, and shortstop Michael Escado, who is only 18, and Kanan Smith, who is an outfielder, to the Pittsburgh Pirates for Tyon. Atlanta, they signed Pablo Sandoval to a minor league deal with a camp invite. Boston, a one-year $10 million deal for pitcher Garrett Richards. Washington, they re-signed Ryan Zimmerman to a one-year million-dollar deal for his 16th season with the Nationals, and he's expected to be a part-time facing mostly lefty pitchers. Boston signed utility man Kike Hernandez, two years, $14 million. The Cubs reached a one-year, $1.5 million deal with Austin Romine, who is expected to be the backup catcher replacing Victor Caratini, who was traded to the Padres with Hugh Darvish. Pitcher Wade Davis is returning to the Royals on a minor league deal. Jay Happ, he 
signed a one-year $8 million deal with the Twins. It's a lot of people thought he could be with the Yankees, but he's not. He's going to Minnesota. And lastly, Michael Brantley re-signs in Houston with a two-year $32 million guaranteed deal. Fully guaranteed. And the interesting part is they didn't originally extend a qualifying offer when that deadline came out. But their needs changed when Springer left, so they had to re-sign Brantley. I thought he was going away. Yeah, I thought he was going to as well, but think about him going to Toronto as it was reported. But I guess that changed pretty quickly. Yeah, you think you know what's going on in this game, and it's like a curveball gets thrown to you at any time. And that certainly happens when it comes to free agents and the trades. Hey, you were talking about Boston. I've been wondering, you know, what they're going to do. Was it Heim Bloom went up there a year or two ago? And since that controversial move of sending Mr. Mookie Betts over to the Dodgers, really curious to see what these couple of trades you were talking about here, the one-year $10 million trade for uh, Garrett Richards, pitcher, and with Kiki Hernandez, you know, getting him for two years for $14 million. I mean, a couple of things I'm seeing here. One, I'm seeing short-term contracts. Two, I, it's an investment, you know, and that it's a decent investment too. So I'm curious to see how that actually changes things. They could be using them as, you know, trade pieces. They sign them to a, a deal right now and they hope that they have a really good year. And then when it comes time around the deadline, they, if they're not in it, which they probably, I don't expect them to be, but they could just use them as a trade piece, much like they, they did here with Yovaldi uh, when they traded him the, the Red Sox. Yeah, exactly. And the thing of it is too, Brandon, when you're looking at these folks, you and I and a lot of people are fans in these relationships that we have with them on our teams. That's one thing. But the people in the front office, they have to look at it with a little colder eye. You know, they have to look at it from a business perspective and to decide what they, needs to be done from there. So I look at some of these guys like at chess pieces. And how there's three or four working boards at the time being moved from one to another. Since we're talking about the players, and we've talked about in the past on what's coming up with spring training. Hearing some rumblings out from the Arizona Cactus League. You had a report on that, didn't you? What's, what's happening with those folks? The Cactus League, they're trying to get the spring training start to be pushed back, you know, just because you know, COVID cases are rising in the, the area. So they're trying to get, you know, spring training pushed back. And, you know, the MLBPA, they're thinking that, the MLB intentionally leaked it to just try and get a shorter season. The interesting part to me is that they play mostly in the Phoenix area. The Phoenix pro teams that are playing right now in the Suns and Coyotes, they're still playing games and they're allowing fans in their building. At least from still what I know of at the time of recording, they still allow fans in the, the arena, which to me is interesting. Yeah, it's... It's a bit of a head-scratcher there, you know. I mean, I realize that things are challenging with COVID-19 in many ways, maybe more so than last year with some of the developments of the uh, of virus and new variants. But I don't know, man. It seems like, uh, it seems like a, a strategy from MLB. But, you know, what, what are we looking at with Florida? I mean, we got everything going out here as well. I mean, you've got about half the teams out in Arizona and half of them are going to be here. And looking at that, too, I, well, you and I were talking before. It looks like the Blue Jays 
Not only will they be doing spring training in Dunedin, but they may actually have their season here. Yeah, that's something to me. You know, it makes sense for them logistically, but, you know, big picture, it doesn't make sense because they have a major league team that calls that area home in the Rays because that's a part of the Bay Area. That, that's the part that doesn't really make much sense to me. I don't know if they'll allow fans, but from what I've seen so far, nothing is official with where they're playing, but there's still more you know, to iron out with this. And if it does come out, then I kind of do have a problem with it, but we'll cross that bridge if we get there. There you go. And, and, you know, maybe the whole idea, because I thought maybe they'd be at Salinger Field and up here in Buffalo, but maybe there's uh, good hopes for a minor league season. Maybe there'd be some conflict there. I don't know. Well, I tell you what, we've talked about some of these moves going on. We talk about decisions being made in the front office. And there's a man who has made an impact with a lot of teams in the last few years, actually probably last 20. And we're going to talk about him for a little bit. That's Theo Epstein. This guy, he has been involved with several teams. We'll go over some of that in a minute. But more recently, he's come in with MLB. Kind of give you an idea of uh, the career of Theo Epstein. I mean, I, I look at him. He is a force in baseball. He has changed the game. The game has been changing around him, but he's changed the game too. If we look over the last five or six years or more, so much has changed with analytics. So much has changed with what you can measure. And, you know, we'll talk about a few things, even like spin rate and a little later in the show. But he has been part of the change he has used the technology, he's used the tools, and he has the mind to be able to make the right decisions to grow a team. I mean, look back, let's see, was it uh, just just uh, November? He was president of the Chicago Cubs, but he left there and he said he's going to take a year off. <laughs> yeah, a lot of us like to do that, but uh, he, he'd actually been there. He had, I think, one year left on his Cubs contract, but I think... I think he was probably just tired. But baseball wasn't going to have any of that. You, sorry, you can't take a year off, Theo. Brandon, it was about two two months later in January this year, he he just took the role of consultant with the MLB. Basically, they want him there taking a good look at the real changes in the game. Say, well, what's – I don't know if he's going to be looking at DH or or what all that involves. That should be interesting in itself, don't you think? Yeah, I'm I'm really excited for what he does, and I think it is something to do with you know rule changes to help grow the game, you know fan interest stuff like that. And I think he'd be good at that because, you know, he's he's relatively a younger guy, even though he's in his I believe he's like 47, so he's still a really young guy. The most important part to me is you see it is that he's more importantly a fan of the game because he was speaking on what analytics were, and he says that you know. They maybe rely on it too much, and that's what you know. It's kind of turning fans off from the game, even though he did benefit largely from it. He won a World Series with the Cubs because of analytics, really. And so, because of his love for the game and the fact that he's you know a younger guy up there as an executive, I think that this is a really good move for baseball. I do too. I'm really looking forward to what all he's going to be able to achieve, and I think with the mindset he has, and like you said, for the love of the game. It makes a difference. A lot of people who evaluate what's going on with baseball don't necessarily give Mr. Manfred much of a break. And 
I don't think a lot of people feel like he has a love for the game. They see him as a businessman. They look at Manford as a lawyer who worked under the former commissioner, Bud Selig, and say, hmm, okay, he was great at being to come in there and assess things. So when Bud left, Manford came up. Now, with Epstein, we're talking about a guy we feel like has had a passion for the game for quite a while. I know I was looking at one interview with him, and he said that he's had a passion to play the game since from age three to about 17. I think he said at 17 he had a realization that uh, <laughs> he'd probably reached his peak. He, he, he was playing for Brookline High School, and he said, you know, I'm enjoying the game, but don't necessarily see me at the big show. So he's, he's trying to figure out he wants to still be involved with it. And he wound up going to Yale. He wound up being the sports editor at Yale Daily News, which I can't even begin to imagine what that looks like. When I think of, uh, you know, big sports news, I don't really think of Yale as a big source of that, of big sports news. That's something that's really interesting that I knew he was an Ivy League guy, but his involvement with sports at Yale is something I really didn't know. One of the formulas for success is to get a good education, be able to make good connections, and perform, perform, perform. So whatever he did, whether he had gone to Yale or not, I don't know that he would have achieved the same thing in baseball, but he would certainly achieve things. It's interesting because because I was reading where he uh, he said he talked about his uh, rule he has, this 20% rule. And what he does or did as he ascended, he would find 20% of the tasks that the executives above him hated doing. You know, they just despised it. They didn't want to do it. It was a pain and. What Theo did said, hey, I would be happy to take those for you. I'd be glad to do that work for you. And so he would take it, excel at it, and he'd learn a lot from the executives. He's learned a lot from the work that was always difficult maybe to do or just problematic and kind of develop a mentor too. So the person he would take the work from, he built a relationship, or more importantly, he built a rapport, a business rapport. And from that, he, I think part of that was what helped him you know, ascend up from there because, okay, for one thing I'm seeing here, I'm basically starting out with some of his history after he, when he was at Yale, he was sending out letters to like all the major league baseball teams. And Brandon, one of them landed on the desk of Calvin Hill. He's like head of the personnel for the Orioles. Not only that, he it was an alumni, I guess he still is, <laughs> alumni of Yale. Um. And guess what? He he opened that letter from Theo and said, huh, maybe we should talk to this young man. So after that, Theo was working for the Baltimore Orioles for three years as an intern and then became their public relations assistant. Now that is a young man who had some planning, had some ideas, and executed it. I don't, what is the exact pathway to going from a PR assistant to a, a GM and now MLB executive? That must be a heck of a career path. It does. I mean, it's been interesting you mention it because I think that building that relationship made a difference. And one of the people he had, basically, I guess, his mentor and one of the people he's working with was the president of the Baltimore Orioles, and that was Larry Lucino. Like I said, he was a president there, and Epstein showed his value to Larry. Well, that was important enough to him is that when Larry moved a little while later, he took the position of the president-slash-CEO of the San Diego Padres. He brought Epstein with him as director of player development. 
you know, Lucino was a lawyer. And the thing that was interesting is once he took him out there to uh, San Diego, he encouraged Theo to go ahead and say, hey, you know what? It would probably help you when you look at baseball. There's so much to do with negotiations. There's so much more to be able to have to take care of the business overall. It wouldn't hurt if you got a law degree. Well, that was good enough for him that uh, Leo, uh, that Theo said, yeah, you know what? He went ahead and attended the University of San Diego, got his degree. That even opened more doors for him. So he left with Larry from the Baltimore Orioles and had headed down to San Diego Padres where he went ahead and, and got the law degree. But when he moved down there, he also worked with Larry as the director of player development for the Padres. You're talking about, you know, where what's that path? I mean, this looked like a pretty good step for him, a good path, a good way to go. So, yeah, like that, I was saying that that kind of follows a, a pathway you were talking about. What, how do you get from A to B on this? But uh, he went A, B, C, and D. I mean, so he'd been with the Padres with Lucino, and Lucino, he continued to advance his career. So by 2002, Lucino was moving to Boston. You know, he was going ahead there and going to B, let's see, what, what road did he have? He took the president position. So he followed him on to Red, Boston Red Sox, 2002 to 2011. That was the career stop that Theo Epstein had there. He had followed Larry Lucino, and as Larry moved up, you know, he advanced. He became the Padres uh, president, and Epstein joined him because he had probably proved himself invaluable with the Padres. So wasn't surprising that Epstein took the role there as interim GM, and soon it didn't take too long. For he cemented that title with just his name on it. And what would he do that would set him apart? What would he do that would make a big difference for that team? Well, this is a time where the Red Sox before this, you know, they were known as the lovable losers, which, you know, I can't really imagine them being anymore. But this is when the Red Sox really became the Red Sox that we know today, you know, getting the big name free agents and always contending for World Series. And it seems like he's the one that really, really kicked that off. He did make a difference with it because, you know, now that he had a law degree, he was also a big part of the negotiations, you know, with players and putting together, I guess, working also with the drafts, all those type of things. So, yeah, he, he did make a big difference there. I mean, he, let's see, a couple of contracts was a Kurt Schilling and Bill Mueller were part of that. And, you know, during his tenure there, Guess what? They won their first, the Red Sox won their first World Series in 2004 with him. And there had been a drought, what, since 1918. So they did have a World Series before the 2004, before Theo Epstein got there. But it had been a while. Epstein, he he actually was there and they won a second World Series underneath his reign. And that was in 2007. What's also interesting, Brandon, while we're looking here, I think he was there from 2002 to 2011, Boston again won the World Series in 2013. I think a lot of that came up from the foundation that Epstein had built on top of. Yeah, I mean, at least the core was built by Epstein. You know, maybe a little bit of pieces here and there were added with the new regime, but definitely the core was from Epstein. That's what it takes. You know, it, it takes a willingness, and it takes time to build. And so he'd been there 2002, 2011, so been there about nine years. 
And I think he probably got the itch again. So the Chicago Cubs looked at him and said, Daggone, Boston, you haven't had a World Series since forever? And we, the Chicago Cubs, we're looking for one, too. It's been a long time. You know, there's there's the curse, the Billy Goat curse that had been sitting on them for so long, and they needed somebody to come in and break it. So 2012, Epstein came in, man, hit the ground running as president of baseball operations for Chicago Cubs, and his goal was to break that curse, man. That was it. He was very good about letting people know this isn't going to happen overnight. This is going to take some time. So, you know, I think the Cubs have been patient for a while. I was wondering how much longer they could take. <laughs> and from the time he started, well, I was in 2012, the year before, 2011, the Cubs payroll was at $128 million. Now, by 2019, what do you think that number was? Let's see. I'm going to go with, you know, with all the success they had, I think I'll bump it up to maybe about 170, 180. Well, that would make sense, yeah. <laughs> Looking at Sport Track, they're saying it went from $128 million to double to $254 million for a payroll budget. Huge. Huge. You want to build a team, you got to pay for it. That's that's part of the equation right there. Yeah, you can't be cheap when it comes to, to winning in baseball. No. <laughs> we know enough about that, <laughs> but anyway. Oh, yeah. One of it, you know, I mean, you know, one of the you say, well, what changes did he make? Well, he brought some some really good people in, some people he'd worked with before. You know, he he brought in Jed Hoyer. He'd worked with him in San Diego, and brought him as later on to serve as the new general manager. He brought in another fellow who's been linked in a lot of controversy and got himself fired, and that was uh, Jared Porter. You know, he Jared Porter was with him at the Cubs as director of professional scouting, and he had some success. I mean. They were part of what built that 2016 team. But unfortunately, Porter evidently made some really very bad decisions. And when he decided to move to the Mets, didn't last too long. So, But everybody, you're not going to be able to tell everything about everybody. But so above and beyond that, the, the real big successes that uh, Epstein made were folks that he brought in like Joe Madden. You know, look for a good manager. There's one. That's our boy. That's our boy. You know, with him, he brought just Ben Zobrist in. Aradis Chapman, my favorite pitcher, relief pitcher of all time, brought him <laughs> in. Uh, Who has no control. Oh, gosh, yeah. Get a grip. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he he also drafted, what, uh, Chris Bryant, Kyle Schwarber, and Ian Happ. And you take all that and a lot more and mix it up in a pot and it turned into a 2016 World Series. The Billy Goat curse, curse had been defeated. Now, by the way, that came from a gentleman by the name of William Cianis years ago, who was the owner of the Billy Goat Tavern, which I actually visited when I was in Chicago a while back. It was something to see and all about the Billy Goat curse. But that has been lifted. It was lifted by, you know, Mr. Theo Epstein. And... He was there still with a contract. I think he had about another year left on it. But I'm sure he looked back and said, well, you know what? Mission accomplished. Done what I wanted to do here. Maybe time to do something a little different. You know, he'd been to the last place, I think, about nine years. He'd been here now about eight. And he said, I think I want to take a break. I think I'm going to stop. You know, there's, 
<laughs> like I said, a guy like him may stop, but can you imagine how many times that door of his got knocked, how many emails, how many calls came after that? I imagine it'd be like, like an FBI raid or something with all these organizations out there. I mean, he broke two of the biggest known curses and the curse of the Bambino and now the curse of the Billy Goat. I imagine a lot of people who thought, you know, that'd be impossible to break. They want him as their GM now to break their own curse. Exactly. He, you know, he is the basically baseball wizard. <laughs> you know, he, he defeated the Voldemort of curses. <laughs> and, oh, my gosh. But, uh, you know, when he left, though, I don't know if there's some things going on back side of this in Chicago Cubs or not. Because, you know, there was a short period of time. I mean, there's been a lot of questionable changes going on with since Jed Hoyer, one of his protégés, came in. And. I mean, you you and I have been looking at the hot stove, and it's kind of surprised about seeing you, Darvish, go. We've heard so much about Chris Bryant back and forth over this time. And I was looking at one report, Brandon, and they were saying that if you compare spring training for the Cubs this time last year, if you look at the five pitchers they had as the primary rotation, four of them are gone. Yeah. Four of what they had are gone. Now – I don't know. I don't know how it's going to pay off or not, but I don't think necessarily a lot of fans are happy with that. And I don't blame them. I mean, these guys brought you a World Series a couple, just a few years ago. And now I believe what, only Chris Bryant is the only guy left from that run. I think somebody yeah. else is. I can't remember their name off the top of my head. I apologize, but there are only like two guys left from that run still on a team. It's scary, dude. It really is. I was curious about this, so I reached out to Sarah Sanchez. You and I both communicating with her in the past. She's a co-host of Cuppy Cubby Blue. So if you all, I, I recommend you want to stay in touch a little bit more with the Cubs, definitely check out her podcast on Cup of Cubby Blue. Now, I asked her, I was messaging with her on Twitter, saying, hey, what's going on? What, How do you feel about this? And she came back, she says, Mark, you know, I, I think the biggest difference between the Theo years and the Hoyer regime, I really like it, she's used the word regime, and the Hoyer regime so far has been transparency. She, she goes on to say, Theo was always masterful exp- at explaining exactly where the franchise was going and why. So, for example, he was very upfront about the need to rebuild when he came in, and he was always willing to say, this is going to take multiple years. You know, much like you and I were saying. And Sarah goes on to say, Hoyer has not been as available, and when he was, after the Hugh Darby's trade, he tried to explain that it wasn't about finances and they aren't going for a long-term rebuild, which frankly doesn't make a lot of sense given their return in that deal. Wow. So that's from Sarah Sanchez, again, co-host of Cubby Cubby Blue. And so if you've got a fan thinking that way, you've got somebody who's watching over what's going on with the team, I don't know what the Cubs are going to look like this year. But it doesn't sound like there's a lot of confidence in the regime that's been left behind since Theo's departure. Yeah, I don't blame him for not having any confidence. I mean, you're watching a bunch of big stars walk out the door in the span of, what, one offseason? Yeah. You go from a guy who is honestly what you want in a GM, who wants to win and is somebody who's just open and honest and saying, hey, we're, we're going to rebuild. It's going to take a few years, but when it comes time, we're going to be really good to a guy who really won't communicate and 
kind of feeds lies and saying, you know, hey, we're we're not rebuilding, we're just like reloading or whatever it is. When looking at what they're doing, it really does not look like that. Like what he's saying is true. Well, that's that's the case, you know. Maybe maybe it's not a lie. Maybe he truly believes it is. <laughs> Who knows? But that's it. Seems a little weak to say the least. And I'm with you on that, man. That's just crazy. From those decisions, I mean, if you were going to have somebody like Theo Epstein with MLB, I mean, I'm I'm looking for some great things for him to come, and especially now, I, as I was talking earlier, you know, about the whole idea of Manfred ascending after Seelig's departure. I wonder that in you know a few years, if Rob Manfred gets tired of it all, if indeed we'd see Theo ascend to the throne there as the commissioner. Yeah, I'd love to see that happen. I mean, I haven't seen you know Epstein in his baseball executive role yet, but honestly, I think somebody who loves the game, was a part of the game like himself, would work wonders for this league. And I don't think it comes soon enough because I don't think I made it a secret. I don't think Manfred is good for the game and the direction that it's going. I was speaking with somebody the other night, and – he shared with me something that should have been immediately at the top of my mind, but wasn't. He said, every commissioner that's in there, he said, you know, if you're thinking that somebody like Epstein's going to make a big difference, he says he might. But remember, nobody's going to get that to that position unless the owners want them there. And, you know, talking with you now, saying <laughs> if somebody has their own mindset, if somebody is unique and independent, I don't know that. Epstein will ever make it up there. I, I hope and pray that he does, but he's got to be a businessman as well. You know, he's he's a lawyer like Manfred, and he's got to make his own decisions. But I I want to I tell you what, if you're looking at a at uh, someone who makes a difference from the front office, Theo Epstein does it. So maybe he can make a big difference for us all with Major League Baseball, and at some time, maybe we'll induct him into the Hall of Fame. What do you say? Honestly, I. I- I wouldn't blame him if they put him in right now, all that he's accomplished. I say he definitely should go into the Hall of Fame. Yeah, anybody who makes that kind of a big difference has to. I mean, you think about how many World Series rings he's wearing on his fingers these days, and that all comes from the work that he's done. None of it, none of it just happened. So congratulations to Mr. Theo Epstein and all that he's achieved in his past and all that we hope to see him do in the future with Major League Baseball. Speaking of the Hall of Fame, <laughs> okay, we're recording this on Wednesday, the day after Tuesday. That's usually how they proceed. Oh, it is? And, yeah, so at Tuesday night, everybody was sitting there glued to the tube, waiting to see what would happen when at 6 p.m. in Cooperstown, it was going to be announced who, who will be inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. And we, you and I, and a lot of other people had kind of an inkling which one of the folks would be brought in there. And it was zero. <laughs> whoops. Whoops, whoops, whoops. And, you know, we, we look at, I think some of the guys that were kind of up in the running were, let's see, Kurt Schilling and Barry Bonds. But you say, well, how do you, how do you pick that? I mean, do do is this something by the fans? Is this something by the players, management? Who who makes this decision? 
you and I talked before during the Cy Young and during the MVP awards that were assigned by the Baseball Writers Association of America, they are the same ones who also determine who goes into the Hall of Fame. There's like 400 baseball writers, you know, who, who can submit up to 10 candidates. And from that, there's, let's see, they tabulate all of them. And if anybody appears more than 75% of the time, they are selected to be inducted to the Baseball Hall of Fame. But what's interesting is you can't just write down anybody for those 10 candidates. They have to be, quote, eligible, unquote. And who determines that? Well, the Baseball Writers Association of America has a screening committee. These things always worry me. It sounds like some kind of backroom thing, you know. (laughs) They do. Shadow government going on here. It's the men in black. (laughs) Exactly. A screening committee consisting of baseball writers will be appointed by the BBWA. And this is coming from the Baseball Hall uh, org, and from so Cooperstown site for this the screening committee consisting of baseball writers will be appointed by the BBWA. The screening committee shall consist of six members with two members to be elected at each annual meeting for a three-year term. So they're rotating people in and out of this, which is good. The duty of the screening committee shall be to prepare a ballot listing in alphabetical order. Eligible candidates, who, one, received a vote on a minimum of 5% of the ballots cast in the preceding election, or two, are eligible for the first time and are nominated by any two of the six members of the BBWAA screening committee. Boy, that sounds like we need a lawyer for this. So, you know, who can vote? So they said well, you can, each writer can vote, of the 400 writers can vote for uh, 10 candidates. Okay, you said... Eligible candidates. Who are the eligible candidates? Basically, there's a long list of things they have to do. We're not going to get down to all the nitty-gritty, but you're looking at one of the most. Let me see. A player must have been active as a player in the major league at some time during a period beginning 20 years before and ending five years prior to election. So basically, they couldn't have played in the last five years. Player must have played in each of 10 Major League Championship seasons. Also, players shall have ceased to be an active player player in the Major Leagues at least five calendar years. Some of this is redundant. In the case of the death of an active player or a player who has been retired for less than five full years, a candidate who is otherwise eligible shall be eligible in the next regular election held at least six months after the date of death or after the end of the five-year period, whichever occurs first. And the party of the first part with the second part shall meet up with the third part. No, wait a minute. That's not there. <laughs> Any player on baseball's eligible list shall not be an eligible candidate. I think that's one that's interesting. wonder who's on the ineligible list. I can think of one name and one name only immediately. Actually, two. You can say Shoeless Joe and uh, Mr. Rose. But that's pretty much it. So last night we didn't see anybody win. And now that you know more than you care to about that process, Brandon, were you surprised not to see like Kurt Schilling or Barry Bonds at getting there? I mean, I thought maybe they would make it. Honestly, going in, I wasn't going to be surprised either way. Because, you know, Kurt Schilling, even though 
you know, his on-the-field stuff. He didn't, at least to my knowledge, didn't use steroids or was, you know, accused of using them. So I thought he would eventually get in, even though, you know, his very, his beliefs he puts out there are, are very out there and extreme. Yeah, he got fired for him, didn't he? I think ESPN canned him for him. Yeah, they, they let him go. So, I mean, and, you know, he said he wanted to be taken off the ballot. So I guess he took care of his own problem there. Yeah, for next year. He didn't say it before this year, did he? No, he said it about like 30 minutes after they came out with the vote. So, sorry, you didn't win. Okay, that's great. Don't put me in next year. Yeah, <laughs> what he had. I mean, it takes 75% to get there, but Kurt Schilling actually got much closer, I think, than a lot of people thought. He took 71% of the vote, 71.1 to be specific. Yeah, he might have been able to get it in next year the way he was going. You know, there's, with him, there's probably so much controversy going around, some of the offensive remarks he's made, that he figured he'd have to go through this cycle again next year because uh, everybody dredges it up, points at him. Hey, you're the guy that said, you're the guy that got fired. Yeah, okay. And maybe he just doesn't want to deal with that. So, or he's just too damn embarrassed. I don't know. But, but the thing about it, you're looking at some of these folks, and you think about people who've made it there. You you look at somebody who who's an icon, and that's that's Hank Aaron. And first off, I want to say that we at Baseball Biz, and I'm sure baseball fans everywhere, to send our well wishes and prayers to the family and to Hank Aaron. And but looking looking at him, it's not surprising when we're talking Hall of Fame. He he was brought into it in in 1982, and he's a man who's left a legacy like none other. So if you're going to be in the Hall of Fame, I was going back and forth with somebody on Twitter the other day. And they were saying, well, they should take the top two people in the votes and put them in each year. I was like, no, 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 no. No, this thing has to have prestige. It has to be able to have somebody who rises above just the top two for this year. So I'm okay with not having anybody in there. Yeah, it's the Hall of Fame. You're supposed to be, you know, even if you're great, that's still sometimes may not be good enough. You got to be, you know, almost exceptional. And I don't think you should lower the standards just because nobody got in. The standards should be high. It's the best of the best to ever do it. You know, they said it's like a very small percentage of a very small percentage that are the best at what they do. And professional sports make it into the Hall of Fame. So it, it shouldn't be made easier just because nobody got in. If nobody's good enough that year to get in, then, you know, so be it. Maybe they will be better next year. Because there are guys that I think will eventually get in, you know, like Scott Rowland, Todd Helton, Dan Aaron. I think they may eventually get in, but, you know, maybe just not right now. I think there's going to be special exceptions, too, in the future. Um, More about some of the great, great, great players from the Negro Leagues. And looking at 1982, Hank Aaron, he entered the Hall of Fame. He won, he had a 97.8% list he was there. I think Derek Jeter had a high number, too. Cause, but 97.8%. And in 1982, Frank Robinson joined him that year, too, with 89.2% of the vote. That, that is, that, those are high accolades. And quite honestly, I think in 1982, 
they may have gotten higher numbers than that, except there was probably still a lot of racism that was out there. Not, not to say that it's gone today by any stretch of imagination, but uh, I, I'm sure that may have been part of the reason that it wasn't even higher. But, you know, you're looking at a guy like Hank Aaron, you know, he's a home run king, and back in April 1974, when he tied Bruce's record by achieving a career of 714 home runs, What's interesting about that, Brandon, is, you know, like that happened on opening day. He had gone all the way through the 1973 season and came up one home run short of tying Babers record. It was interesting because, too, that on the opening day of 1974, the first three games with the Atlanta Braves, which is the team, that Hank Aaron was on. The first three games are going to be played in Cincinnati. There was a lot of hullabaloo back and forth about that. And saying, well, you know what, maybe maybe the Braves just won't play him until he comes to our first homestand, which will be 10 games, and he can he can break the record then and or match it and break it. But uh, there's a lot of back and forth between Bowie Kuhn at the time and the Braves. And... Actually, I'm going to save that for another show. There's a, there's a whole other story about the commissioner. So we're we're going to stop at that point. But I do want to say, you know, looking at from the uh, home run record that Aaron achieved, it later on it'd be eclipsed by Barry Bonds. And you're like, and Barry Bonds, you know, many feel like his achievements should be marked with an asterisk. And it's probably one of the reasons he hasn't made it to the Hall of Fame, you know, because of performance-enhancing drugs like steroids. Now, it's not surprising because of the kind of man that Hank Aaron was. He was He's much more forgiving than most. Just a year ago, he was speaking with Craig Melvin from the Today Show, and they asked him about his thoughts on Barry Bonds, if he should make it into the Hall of Fame. And let's play this clip. Barry Bonds and some of these other guys who've admitted to juicing, do you think they belong in the Hall of Fame? Yes. Really? Yes. Even though they they were on steroids, we've had so many cheaters that have made the Hall of Fame, and I don't see any reason why Barry or any of the rest of them shouldn't make it. So you can see he's a very forgiving person, probably more so than than Craig Melvin at that point, who said, "How how can you be like that?" But you know that that was the nature of the man. Yeah, I mean. You can't, I mean, the Hall of Fame is subject, subjective to anybody's opinions. And, you know, you can't go through history and just say, oh, you cheated? Oh, well, you're out then. I mean, we can't really do that anymore. We're going to have a lot smaller of a Hall of Fame than if we do that. And I, mean, I don't know, you know what's right or wrong with it. I have my own opinions on it. I've said it before. And it, it's really the honest, it's like the, the live example of to each their own, I guess. To talk about the kind of man he was, when Bonds broke his record on August 7, 2007, he, uh, Aaron made a surprise appearance up here on, on the Jumbotron. And there he is, the big video screen at the AT&T Park, which I love that place, and out there in San Francisco. Don't you love that sitting on the bay and hitting the balls out there? So when 
when Bonds hit that home run up on the Jumbotron, up comes none other than Mr. Hank Aaron. And he said, I would like to offer my congratulations to Barry Bonds on becoming baseball's career home run leader. It is a great accomplishment, which required skill, longevity, and determination. Throughout the past century, the home run has held a special place in baseball, and I have been privileged to hold this record for 33 of those years. I move over now and offer my best wishes to Barry and his family on this historical achievement. My hope today, as it was on that April evening in 1974, is that the achievement of this record will inspire others to chase their own dreams. Okay, I love that last part. One, to me, it says it was amazing. This man, he, he had no ill will about the whole thing. But that last sentence, my hope, as it was on that April evening in 1974, is that the achievement of this record will inspire others to chase their own dreams. Wow. Yeah, that last part's really good. No, you're right there. I mean, here he is, the home run king for 33 years. He was never one to seek out, you know, praise or anything like that. But he he, he seemed genuine every time he spoke with folks. And Oh, by the way, did you hear, Brandon, about, you know, just as the Cleveland Indians are, are having to change their name, but there has been some discussion about the Atlanta Braves. I mean, do they go the way of, like, Oh, Washington and be the Washington football team and be the Atlanta baseball team. That would be something. That that'd be a that'd be kind of like a, a cool, unique name. Even though we kind of get old, each team or each league had somebody called you know the Atlanta baseball team or Washington football team. I think it get kind of old pretty quickly. <laughs> Probably so, and I think Atlanta fans realize that too. One of the things I was really excited to hear is that somebody's recommending, they, they call them the Atlanta Hammers. The Atlanta Hammers, you know, in honor of hammering Hank Aaron. I think that'd be awesome, because not only is it honor your past, you could also use the song Hammer Time as your victory song. I like that. <laughs> I love that. Uh, you know, and if not, I'm sure somebody, if nothing else, would pick that up for their uh, walk-up music, too. That's that's a great idea, man. Hey, they, I love that. They should. The, my Nickelodeon idea was floating around a few weeks ago. People took that. Maybe they can take this one, too, if that happens. Listen up, baseball. Take Take heed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. All right, man, it is that time. That time for the way that we we wrap up things around here with the stat wrap. And this week, we're talking about, bring it to me, Brandon. Spin rate. Spin rate. Now, I've got a baseball in my hand right now, and I'm looking at the threads and all this. Give me an idea. What What is the spin rate? I hear them, uh, broadcasters use it all the time during the games. And what actually is a spin rate? Well, what spin rate is, it's basically a fancy term for RPMs, revolutions per minute. And the amount of spin on a pitch changes its trajectory. This comes courtesy of MLB.com's glossary. The same pitch thrown at the same velocity will end up in a different place depending on how much it spins. So, aside as an example, a fastball with a high spin rate appears to have a rising effect on the hitter 
and it crosses the plate a few inches higher than a fastball of equal velocity with a lower spin rate. So a lower spin rate on a changeup tends to create more movement. I see what you're saying about this. Whereas the spin rate is going to affect the placement of the ball, where it's going to is it going to rise up or is it going to come down? Now, what does it actually affect? From everything I've gathered, the spin rate does not affect the the speed. It affects the movement of the pitch. So you could, like with the fastball, you could throw it at the same speed, but depending on the spin rate, it'll be in different locations. Like, say I throw a ninety-five mile an hour fastball at you. If it's a higher spin rate, it'll look like it's rising. But if it's a slower spin rate, it'll have a, a lower. I get that. So if I'm the batter, I see the ball coming pretty much at the same speed to me. So it's not like it's a fastball per se. You're, how you control the spin rate, how you're delivering that ball to me, is going to determine where it's going to come across the plate to me. High, low, wherever, in between. And that's all determined by the spin rate. It's similar to throwing a football. You know, if it's a tight spiral, like it doesn't wobble, it'll go further than if it's, say, a, a wounded duck, as they call it, where it's very wobbly. It won't go as far. It'll go at a lower trajectory than the tighter spiral. Well, explain something to me. As a pitcher, what are you doing with that ball in your hand to affect the spin rate? Is it... Where you're putting your fingers? Is it the threads of the ball? Is it, you know, what, what is it? What's affecting it? To me, there's all sorts of things that can affect the spin rate. You know, the grip, you know, like the sticky stuff situation we had with Bubba Harkins, that can affect the spin rate. The grip you have on it, that affects it. You know, where your finger placement on the seams, that can affect it. There are a whole bunch of factors that go into spin rate. It's not just like one single thing. Well, that's very interesting because I'm, I'm looking at this and I'm saying to myself, if there was a way for me to control the placement of the ball that's going to confuse the batter, I mean, that's the tack to take. So I'm, I'm really excited to see this. I'm, I'm going to look up a little bit more on it myself. You know, I know, the rotation of the ball. I know some of the numbers I'm seeing looking at, uh, because it only takes a second to get, it, get there, it would be maybe like a 24 to 2,500 rotations per minute. But it's only going to be about 14 <laughs> when you think of the one second that it's going to take to get from uh, the fingers of the pitcher to the mid of the catcher. That's an exciting thing. I'm, I'm going to play a little bit, pay him a little bit more attention. But maybe we can talk a little bit more about the dynamics of, uh, of those type pitches in the future. Yeah, this is definitely an interesting thing because there's so much that goes into it, even though it's just a simple measurement. There's so much into it. Well, it, the thing about it is that little simplicity makes a big difference to what can be the final score of the game when a pitcher can confuse and confound, you know, somebody at the plate. And that's, that's what their, uh, their task is. One last thing I want to say about spin rate, and you mentioned too that it might be affected by whatever sticky stuff they need. And I know they said some things about Garrett Coe and sticky stuff. But another thing is that in the last few years, the technology has advanced to where they can actually tell more about the spin rate. If I have more of that information as a pitcher – I can determine a little bit more about how I'm going to throw that ball. And if I can measure what the results of those are, that's going to help me for the future. Well, that's about it with me, Brandon. What do you got? Anything else? Just one week closer to baseball. Wow. Yeah, it's going to be here, brother, before you know it. Bang, bang, bang. Well, get out those gloves, start softening them up, get ready for the season, boys and girls. 
It's going to be here. We want to thank you again for joining us this week here on Baseball Biz. I'm Mark Carbage, your host, and that's Mr. Brandon Noway. You can find him at Sports Blitz Pod. Did I get it right this week? Yes, that's correct. <laughs> you can you can find me at the Baseball Biz and on Twitter as well. So both of us are there. You can also find this podcast in many different locations, including iHeartRadio, Apple, Podcast.Google, Stitcher, and the list goes on and on. <laughs> but anyway, we wanna we love you guys. We're just glad you were able to, to spend a little bit more time again with us this week talking about baseball, Hall of Fame, Hank Aaron, and Theo Epstein, who just still amazes me. So want to thank everybody for coming this week. And we look forward to talking with you all again real soon. Special thanks to X-Take RUX for the music rocking forward. Also thanks to Sarah Sanchez from the podcast Cup of Cubby Blue for her input on Theo Epstein.